0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we continue our discussion of the book The Attributes of God and we're going over chapter 12. Uh, and last time we went over timelessness and what that entails and now we're going to talk about the subjects of immutability and impassibility. um just to start out, immutability, if you recall from chapter two, we talked about kind of the Thomas system and the and these concepts of immutability and impassibility. immutability meaning cannot be changed from what it is, and impassibility meaning can't really be like affected. And this context generally means emotionally. And we're going to go into each of those individually. So in this first section here is called defining changelessness. And so we're going to talk about immutability first. I would like to start out with this quote here. It says, there are numerous senses in which a thing may be immutable or changeless. The strongest sense entailed by the concept of eternal timelessness is that necessarily God cannot change with respect to any of his intrinsic or real properties. And then in the book, you kind of talk about how God, at least in this point of view, God doesn't change, but it does acknowledge that other things do change, but it asserts basically that they only change in relation to God, but God himself is not changing. And is there any other recap? And we've talked a lot about the Thomist view of immutability, so I don't know how much we need to go into it, but if there's anything else when we talk about this.
1: Let's lay some important foundation. First, We're talking about changes in a thing, and there are numerous ways in which thing can change. So, for instance, there's a painting that I used to not like at all, but now I quite like it. So it has changed in this sense. The property of not being liked by me has changed to the property of being liked by me. However, these are called external properties because they're not intrinsic. They're not part of the painting. They're a relational property in relation to me and the way that I had to regard it. So external properties, or properties that are relational in this sense, can change with respect to God, even on this view. It's his intrinsic properties. And when I say his, I'm using the word his loosely, because on this sense there's no gender at all. But bottom line is, is that God can change with respect to these relational or external properties. The second thing is, why is this important? In the religious life, we pray. And when we pray, we're praying to influence God. If God is immutable in the sense he can't be influenced, he doesn't change in any sense and our prayers don't change him because if he changed his mind, if he changed his point of view, if he changed his intention, if he changed his plan in any way, then what would be happening is he would be changing in intrinsic properties. Now, those in the tradition have denied that when God's plan changes, he's changing somehow his mind, but it can't be the case that God has plan A and then it changes to plan B. So in that sense, God's plan can't change. But if we pray, a lot of us believe, and I'm one of them, that when we pray, that we can influence God to change what otherwise would have been. So we have the example of Moses when he's talking with God, and God flat out tells him that he is going to destroy Israel. Moses argues with him and tells God that would be unworthy of him, and he doesn't want his people to be destroyed. And so he actually influences God to change and it says it so explicitly in both Deuteronomy and Numbers, God changes his intention. But an intention is an internal or an intrinsic property, and therefore, on this view, couldn't be changed. So those who read the scriptures and hold this view would have to read that in an attenuated or metaphorical sense, rather than taking the scripture at its word as to what it says. So there are a lot of things in the religious life that are particularly important, and most of them have to do with personal qualities. And Impersonal things don't change in in important senses in relation to us. When I'm having terrible events in my life that cause me deep sorrow, I don't expect telephone poles to have deep sorrow with me. But I expect those who care about me in some sense to be moved by my sorrow as I'm moved by theirs. We have compassion and empathy and the emotional tenor of our lives has changed. And we'll get into that when we get into impassibility more. But impassibility and immutability are interrelated in this sense. So. This is really a very important issue in both our spiritual lives and for purposes of understanding God in very important senses. So careful attention to the ways in which God changes is important in approaching God in any
0: sense. All right, great. All right, now we're going to kind of go through some different definitions of immutability from different points of view and just kind of give like logical definitions. So in the absolutist sense... We are going to first start out with that one. We're going to call that immutability A, and that can be more fully defined as this. An object O is immutable, or immutable A, like the definition that we're talking about, if necessarily none of O's intrinsic properties are subject to change. So that's, again, the absolutist view. And I just want to read this before we talk more about that. It says, This notion of immutability arises naturally enough from the view that God is without parts and passions. If God has no parts... And he does not have spatial parts like hands and legs he cannot have a physical body that is located in spatial dimensions or has spatial extension further there cannot be any temporal parts such as a before or after in the divine experience god must be outside of time altogether if he is simple in this sense and again this relates to the divine attributes usually defined by the absolutist point of view And next, I want to dive into this part of the book where you introduce Richard Creel, who you refer to a lot in this chapter. So first off, who is Richard Creel, and what is the main book you're contending with, or where are you getting this from?
1: Richard Creel is a professor of philosophy who wrote probably the finest book, I think, that's been written, focusing on the notions of impassibility and immutability. It's really a a top-notch work. And Creole has had a great deal of influence as a result on these kinds of issues. So he's kind of uh, e- even still, because the book was written, I believe, in the early '90s, still a go-to guy for this kind of a thing.
0: All right, and is he more of like a Thomist, or where would he fall on the spectrum? He's modified.
1: He has a view that isn't strictly Thomas, but wants to maintain a very strong sense of immutability and a strong sense of impassibility.
0: Okay, so he has further views, but he's kind of very heavily influenced by classical theism, it sounds like. All right, let me just read this, and then we can go through each of these points. It says, Richard Creel has isolated eight senses in which God has been termed impassible which provide a full range of both subjective and objective notions of immutability and impassibility. And there's eight of these items, and I'm going to read them off, and then if you want to, we can go through them as far as what Richard Creel's points are about them that you make in the book. So first is lacking emotions. God has neither positive emotions, such as happiness and bliss, nor negative emotions, such as pain, suffering, and sadness. Let's comment on them one by one. That would be faster, I guess.
1: Sure. So... This is not a sense of simply saying that God is not acted upon. What we want to say is that the tenor of God's emotive life never changes. So regardless of what happens in the world, God is always perfectly happy. And nothing can happen to make it so that he's not perfectly happy. And so even if the world goes to hell in a handbasket and everybody suffers for eternity, it's all the same to God because he's perfectly happy.
0: All right, the second is, In a state of mind that is imperturbable, you know, the term perturbed. He can't become perturbed, apparently. Events cannot so occur that God is not perfectly blissful.
1: So this is closely related to the first. However, God is perfectly happy. On the first view, he lacks emotions altogether. So to say that on the first view that he has positive emotions, such as happiness, is a misstatement. He doesn't have emotions at all. On this one, God does have an emotion. He's perfectly blissful being blissful, being a type of, of emotion. But God's state of mind is such, he's like a, a Zen master, nothing bothers him.
0: All right, makes sense. Okay, the third says, he is insusceptible to distraction from resolve. Or in other words, events cannot so occur that God's will is changed. You developed something that sounds similar to this, but I don't know if you want to adopt exactly this.
2: Well,
1: yeah, you know, what this means is that God's commitment can never be changed. So, once God has decided to do something, it's going to happen, and nobody could change his course. So, on this one, if you accepted that he's insusceptible from distraction from resolve, Moses couldn't have influenced him to change his resolve to destroy Israel to the resolve to work with Moses and see if he couldn't reform Israel. On that view, that kind of change would be impossible, but it's not the case that God changes in all respects. Perhaps he has a higher resolve. So. Let's be careful about this. Perhaps God's resolve is, I'm going to bring about the best world, given the response of free agents in the world, and given that Moses has reacted the way he does, the best solution is now different than it was before, because Moses' commitment has changed what I'm committed to, which is the best. So what I've changed isn't my resolve or my commitment, what I've changed is the basis for responding to the way that the world has actually turned out to achieve my commitment. So one could still say, perhaps, that God had the kind of resolve that is required by this view of, of not being as distracted from resolve in any way, just that it's a higher one that's not expressed in the scriptures immediately, because what is immediately at issue is whether Israel will be destroyed. But God's purposes for Israel, perhaps, were not changed.
0: Okay, makes sense. Number four is having a will determined entirely by oneself. So God's will is neither influenced nor modified by anything external to God.
1: Right. So in this respect, what God chooses to do is totally up to him, and he doesn't care what we think, and we couldn't possibly do anything that would change the way that he wills. So this is consistent with the Thomas view that there's a single instant in which a divine plan is adopted, and nothing can happen that would change his will, because his will is resolved from all eternity on that view. But it also could be that there's a temporal God, and he's made up his mind, and he can't change it, and that's the way it's going to be. So you can't change God's will. This would also be contrary to the scripture where God, at least in the Joseph Smith-inspired version of God, changed that which he intended to do. So that kind of change would be impossible on this view.
0: All right, and number five is incapable of being acted upon. Nothing external to God influences any of his intrinsic properties or acts upon him in any way.
1: This is the view that is entailed by Thomism and the notion of aseity that the causal influence is always by God and acting upon other things. Nothing has any causal influence in any way on God.
0: Six, cannot be prevented from achieving one's purpose. Nothing external to God can prevent the efficacious exercise of his will.
1: So, on this view, God would have to have sufficient power and knowledge to be able to ensure that whatever he wills to bring about, he can bring about it, and he knows that there's nothing in his path that will be an obstacle to doing that and he is so committed to what his purpose is that nothing external to him can change him from achieving his purpose. However, God could change his mind on this view. That would be an internal change made by God himself. So God may be influenced by Moses to change what he intended to do, but God will still achieve his purposes for Israel.
0: Okay, cool. And seven, has no susceptibility to negative emotions. God never fills suffering, sadness, or pain.
1: So on this view, God's life is so complete that there is nothing that could occur that makes it so that he is lost in depression or that he despairs or that he isn't pleased because he is a happy person, I guess we could say. He has positive emotions. He's happy. He feels joy. He feels love, but he doesn't feel pain and suffering, and he doesn't feel negative emotions such as um, despair or depression in any sense.
0: Okay, and then the last one says, cannot be affected by an outside force or changed by oneself. In other words, nothing can change God.
1: Well, on this one, nothing can change God, because if he can't change himself, nothing outside of him can change. But the sense in which he's not being changed would have to be defined. But whatever it is, God is complete, and there's nothing internal or external to God that's going to change him.
0: And in the book, you then go over Krill's points about them. Is that kind of what we just did here, or is there anything that you need to bring up from richard krill about any of these points that you, or should we just move on
1: so krill defines a passibilist as anyone who believes that god is influenced by beings who are distinct from god if god chooses to make himself vulnerable and open to influences so if you're a passibilist, you believe that god can be influenced if he chooses to be influenced that he isn't changed or affected in any way if he doesn't choose to go along with what you choose to do so, there's a sense in which God is still impassible on that view. His will is, in a sense, something that still could be changed, it could be influenced, but it would have to be God's choice and up to him. So, that's a passibilist on Krill's view. An impassibilist is one who rejects that view. And this is important. A passibilist does not claim that God is at the mercy of humankind and to be rendered, as I said, uh, in despair, or to be made so sad that he really can't function. Take this and and put it in this context. You have a person who's a fully mature Christian, and they suffer loss in their lives. But because they have such faith, and because their life is so full, it's full of love, it's full of, of activity, it's full of service, it's full of wonderful and beautiful experiences. And so there isn't this sense of despair, there's not the kind of existential angst that was talked about in the 50s and 60s by the existentialist because life is complete it's full and, and there's always this gratitude and beauty in life and so god is not diminished because his life is so complete that doesn't mean he can't be influenced or affected but when we talk about god being influenced by or having emotions we always want to keep it in the context of the fullness and completion of the divine life because God's life truly is a life, no matter how you look at it, that would be maximally wonderful because he doesn't suffer from self-defeating types of behaviors. He doesn't suffer from self-deception. He doesn't suffer from doing stupid things. He doesn't suffer from sin. He doesn't suffer from the kinds of things that, in other words, really challenge mortals and make it so that sometimes our lives are a living hell that we create for ourselves. Let me put it another way, and this is important. Because I believe that hell actually is what humans create for themselves. God does not create hell for Himself; He creates heaven for Himself, and so His life is always full and complete. And there's this kind of peace and joy and love that is simply reality about the kind of person that God is.
0: All right. Well, that's good stuff. So they're, you know, passable lists. and we'd probably, in the Mormon view, fall under the passableists If you can't tell by the way we're talking about it and just what we understand. But then there's this quote, it says, Nevertheless, the Bible and the Book of Mormon assert that God is an unchangeable being. For example, in Malachi 3.7 it says, For I am Yahweh, and I change not. So at least the Old Testament portion of the biblical record clearly accepts the view that God changes in response to outside influences, but not in all respects. When scripture asserts that God is not changeable, it means that God's faithfulness to his people does not waver. His commitment and care can always be counted on this notion of immutability seems to entail that god does not change in his character and moral attributes so from that in the book you then come up with a second advancement or definition of immutability we call this immutable e and this is in light of those kind of passages in the bible in light of the view that we just described about how it's his character so as an object o is immutable e if O necessarily possesses all essential divine attributes at any time, and if events cannot so happen, that O does not possess them at all times. So this is more saying, that has to keep his core attributes, and those can never change. And that's how the Old Testament would take this. Here's the
1: notion. The notion that God is divine is such that his divine nature cannot be changed. And nature defines the kind of thing that we are. So for instance... A dog couldn't cease to be of the nature of a dog, and a cow couldn't cease to be the nature of a cow. If they did, they'd be something fundamentally different. God couldn't cease to be divine, because if he did, he wouldn't be a god and he wouldn't be divine. So in the tradition, this is the most bedrock notion of unchangeableness. God can't cease to be God. He can't cease to be divine. If he could, then a lot of the writers in the tradition would assert that God's divinity is precarious. Because what if he chose to give up his divinity? The whole world would be lost. What if we could cause him to lose his divinity? Well, then this would be a very precarious type of existence because God's goodness and deity couldn't be counted on in any respect. It could change. So the commitment in the tradition has always been that, at least with respect to the divine attributes, God cannot so change that he doesn't possess all the divine attributes. Let me add, and we'll get to this in the later chapters when we talk about Christology, The primary burden of the Christological councils was to define how a changing being like Jesus of Nazareth walking around the Palestinian countryside could be God who has all of the essential divine beings while still being the person walking around the Palestinian countryside. So what we're talking about here is is trying to put together two things that seem to be very different, but it seems to be kind of a bedrock commitment in the tradition God can't change so that he doesn't possess, at all times, all essential divine attributes. That's the commitment,
0: all Right, and then, like you have been saying, that definition seems to be the one held, but it doesn't account for Jesus. And so, in the book, you then advance it to a, another definition that would more closely account for Jesus. And in the tradition, generally, I'm sure there's lots of different views, but they believe that Jesus and God are pretty much the same person, so they believe God became incarnated in Jesus, and so that's called incarnation, which is a very common term, but in Mormonism we might not use that as much, just to clarify.
1: carne is just Latin for body or flesh, and so what it means he became embodied or enfleshed.
0: Well, there you go. All right, so to get to this next definition, it says the notion of immutability, which I shall refer to as incarnational immutability, is thus. We'll call this immutability I which is the immutability definition accounting for Jesus, says it must be redefined as follows to accommodate this Christian view of God. A person P is immutable I if P possesses all essential divine attributes at any time and events cannot so happen that P does not possess such attributes at all times unless P voluntarily decides to divest himself of such attributes.
1: So it means that the divine nature can't be changed unless the divine person himself chooses to change it. So events outside of the divine person and forces outside of the divine person could not cause this to happen. It has to be something that the divine person chooses freely to do. Now let me point out that in the tradition, the two nature theory of Christology, which we'll discuss in the last chapters, was the attempt to maintain that God's divine nature doesn't change even given an incarnation. God is always God, Jesus was fully God, and he possessed all the divine attributes and that didn't change even when he became human. You had some incredibly intelligent people trying to figure out how that could possibly be and we'll discuss that later. The view that I have outlined here kind of anticipates the view of Canonic Christology whereby Christ gave up the fullness of divinity in order to become human. So it's a particular view of Christology that is essentially being anticipated here, and I'm defining immutability in such a way as to make room for it.
0: All right, and then you kind of, i will just to finish out this section, it says, I believe that in Mormon thought, the Godhead is understood to be more of the immutable E, meaning, you know, it has all these essential characteristics that won't change in there, like God's resolve doesn't change, and he has properties that don't change. So that's the Godhead, whereas God the Father, or Jesus, any of the individual members, is more in the immutable I sense, or that which accounts for Jesus. However, both of these notions of immutability allow a wide range of the understanding of the nature of of fixity of God's properties.
1: It's important to understand that I'm not asserting more or less, that, that it is more or less immutable here, more or less immutable I. The Godhead meaning the divinity that inheres in the three divine persons united as one essentially possesses all the divine attributes because the divine attributes arise from and emerge from that kind of relationship. So as long as they're in that relationship, it can't possibly change. Here's what can change. The relationship can freely change. So one of the divine persons could choose to leave the Godhead voluntarily and for a time give up the fullness of the divine attributes if they so chose. Now, here's the kicker. Could the, could the members of the Godhead freely choose all three of them all at once to give up the relationship? And so, essentially, the Godhead would cease to exist, and there wouldn't be a person who would have the divine attributes anywhere. We'll discuss this more when we get into Christology and when we get into the third volume, because I spend a good deal of time on this issue. You can see this is an important issue. once we adopt the notions of immutability E and immutability I, this becomes an important issue. And in the third volume, when we get to it, I deal with arguments regarding the view that if we adopt immutability I with respect to the Godhead, that is, that they could freely choose not to be fully divine, that the notion of God and God's divinity is too precarious. We're not really prepared at this point. We don't have enough foundation to fully have that discussion at this point responsibly but to simply prefigure the nub of the argument is essentially that because the divine persons are perfectly rational it would be stupid for them to do that they're not stupid there are other arguments but that's a way to put it so that maybe people can understand it
0: all right great and then we'll move on to the next section that is immutability in nature
1: so that's what we've been discussing, right? So I'll let you kind of get into it. But what we've been talking about is precisely immutability in the divine nature.
2: Right. You started off defining change lists and then getting into that. But you have a sentence here that I want to read. So the, the basic intuition underlying this view that is God's immutability as part of his nature is that his status as God must be impervious to all forces and so steady and trustworthy that not even God could commit deicide. which which is what you were going into, he couldn't choose not to be God or to leave the perfect union of the Godhead and uh, have all of the individuals leave. And so this basic intuition is so strong and it is difficult to find a single writer in the entire history of Christian thought who has dissented. But then, given the Mormon view of God, it becomes a concern that seems like it can't be satisfied. We have Joseph Smith himself that asserted that God has not always been God, and on the face of it, that seems to follow that God's status as a divine being is uh, precarious. He can commit suicide if he wanted. And so, if there was a time when God was not God, then His status as God is merely a contingent and is not merely conceivably, but actually, the case that there were times when God was not God. So, how do we understand immutability in nature with this? This quote that Joseph Smith asserted that God has not always been God.
1: Let me emphasize, people talk about what the distinctiveness of Mormonism is with respect to the tradition, and one distinctive facet is the fact that it denies the creation ex nihilum. But if one had to say that there was a place where Mormonism diverged from almost every single thinker in Christian thought until Joseph Smith, it would be that I believe that Joseph Smith held the view that God is essentially immutable I. That is, that nothing outside of any of the divine persons could cause the divine persons to choose to leave the divine unity of the Godhead and therefore cease to have the essential divine properties as a divine person. But Joseph Smith held that a divine person could do that. A divine person could become fully mortal and limited in such a way that they didn't, during the time that they were mortal, possess the fullness of divinity, because that fullness is experienced only within the context of the perfection of a relationship of the divine persons. So, while the Godhead itself is immutable, e—that is, the Godhead is immutable in nature—because if it, the Godhead, it would simply cease to be the Godhead if, if they all chose to commit suicide, right? But this is the point: the divine persons can freely choose to be less than fully divine for a period of time to experience mortality. They may do this because they have a very good reason to do it, like to save mankind or humankind from itself. So in order to become a being who fully empathizes and has some passion for humanity by undergoing the very same kinds of experiences and thereby gaining the kinds of experiential knowledge necessary to have full compassion with humanity, a divine person may have an overriding rational reason to give up the fullness of divinity for a period of time. If that were necessary, and and we'll discuss this in later chapters and later books, then it would be rational for one divine person at a time to do this. And so this is where I think Joseph Smith really diverges from the tradition. If people were looking and saying, Whoa, Joseph Smith held a view that's really different. It's revolutionary. It's remarkable. And it's this view that I would focus on if we're going to say that there's a weakness in Mormon theology. And this is the strange thing. Those people writing about Mormonism, when they write about this, don't really define it or deal with it in a way that is competent enough to really get to the nub of the issue. They're, you know, they just talk about God just being like he, you know, he's a man who was your neighbor down the street just a long time ago. But of course, that, that's a caricature. That's not really what's being taught. This has to be kept in the context of the Godhead having a fullness of the divine nature And it being the case that events can't so happen that the Godhead doesn't fully possess the divine nature, and the divine person's having the freedom to leave the fullness of the divine nature for a period of time. Not only is this view revolutionary when it comes to expressing the basic commitments of Christianity and Jesus, and what Christianity wants to claim about Jesus of Nazareth, it is the most remarkable solution that I have encountered. It is genius. It is over the top perfect in terms of dealing with this kind of an issue in a way that just dissolves it. It may give rise to other worries, and that's the kind of thing that we'll talk about. But when you get down to the bedrock of it, this is a remarkable facet of Mormon thought. And so when we talk about immutability in nature, we're talking about really the very bedrock theological notion that Mormons and Christians in general have to deal with at its very base.
2: Okay. And I think something that we should underline again is that a confusion that a lot of people can have about the Mormon position is that when you say God has not always been God, they confuse that when we say God, we can either be meaning a title as the Godhead is what we mean, but sometimes when we say God, and that's separate from the single person, the Heavenly Father, God, or God the Son.
1: Right. I think it's the equivocation. When Christians in the tradition, and certainly when Jews and Muslims talk about God, they're usually talking about something different than what Mormons mean when they talk about God. So the Christians are almost always talking about the Trinity as a whole when they talk about God. And Muslims and and Jews don't believe in a trinity. but They believe in a God who's not in this kind of relationship with other divine persons. And so this kind of a view is impossible, given their basic ontology of the divine persons. And so it is very important to make the distinction between the properties of divinity of the Godhead and the properties of divinity of the divine persons considered individually.
2: Okay. Now, you have a point in here where you say... The Mormon view is that there have always been persons who have shared this relationship of divine glory, even though God the Father and also God the Son at separate times have become incarnated and ceased to possess the fullness of divine attributes. Now, in that, are you saying there have always been persons? Are we only mentioning the three persons in the Godhead here, or is that opening the door to an infinite regress of, you know, God the Father has a father, that type of thing? No.
1: And we'll get into this in in later chapters and later books. This is the Mormon view. It's consistent from the Book of Mormon all the way through Joseph Smith. And it is consistent. I mean, the classic expression of this is actually the lectures on faith. But even Joseph Smith and the sermon in the Grove, the last sermon he gave in his life before he was killed, before he was murdered, is a discussion about the relation of the divine persons. And he adopts essentially this view of the Godhead and makes this kind of an explanation. Now, it needs to be parsed because I've treated very carefully the King Follett discourse and the Sermon in the Grove and pointed out that the usual reading that it receives is a very shallow and incomplete reading and that doesn't really place it in the context of Joseph Smith's more complete thought and more importantly, he fails to take consideration of the various sources that we have to make sense of the Sermon. Now, we only have one version of the Sermon in the Grove, but we have at least five of the King Follett Discourse. But what we know of the Sermon in the Grove is is more than sufficient to say that this is a very consistent view from the time that the Book of Mormon is published all the way through the end of Joseph
2: Smith's life. Okay, so you would be of the opinion that the interpretation that a god has a father and that there's a father beyond that is not consistent with the Mormon view?
1: Depends on whether you mean God is a mortal or God is a divine being. Certainly God is a mortal, there was a father, and that father had a father and so forth. But as divine beings, no, God is an eternal being and didn't need to have a father to beget him in that sense. And I argue that Joseph Smith had never discussed in his entire life, and we have no source that suggests, even remotely, that he took up the kind of discussion necessary to introduce the notion that there was this kind of spirit birth or generation in the spirit world. It's a later view. And it comes after Joseph Smith's death. It's not something Joseph Smith ever discussed. We have complete enough sources from Joseph Smith and what he said and those that were around him to have a pretty good idea what he taught. And he didn't teach it. It has been foisted upon him by reading back into his thought statements by Brigham Young and others, particularly like um, Eliza Snow, who's also been misunderstood, by the way, about what Joseph Smith was teaching. Obviously, I'm kind of stopping the development of Mormon thought of Joseph Smith. But I do that because Brigham Young's own thought on this was soundly rejected by the Mormons around him and any later generation of Mormons.
2: Okay. And this might be getting a little bit away from you know the content of the book, but in my experience, and I think most members of the Mormon Church would also say that probably the prevailing view right now is the God the Father had a divine father that had a divine father. What are your your thoughts on that?
1: We'll get to that in a later chapter, so I don't think we had to spend a lot of time on it, but not in this book. I get into this at some length in the last chapter in Volume 2 and in the first chapter of Volume 3. We haven't had sufficient development of our concepts yet to responsibly have that conversation.
2: Okay, so we'll save that for another time. We'll finish up the immutability in nature then with this quote. The view that the Godhead is essentially divine but does not necessarily exist, and that the divine persons exist of ontological necessity, but are not necessarily fully divine, is at the heart of the difference between Mormonism and traditional Judeo-Christianity. Do you have any comment on that before we moved on?
1: Well, that's kind of what I was saying before. Not kind of, that is what I was saying before. If one wants to look for the real theological meat as to where Joseph Smith's thought differed from traditional Christianity, in my opinion, this and the notion of creation ex nihilo are the two primary foci that a person needs to
2: look at. All right. And with that, we'll go on to the other side of the immutability, which is immutability in will. And I'll send that back to Corey.
0: So I'll start that out with this. says, it is generally assumed in Christian thought that God can be influenced in some sense by prayers. And we started to talk about this earlier, about how important that is. So it's natural to think that God can freely respond to prayers in a sense of a living relationship with persons. Prayers thus change or influence God's will in the sense that they occasion a change in God's will. So that in the tradition, I would imagine they have kind of a philosophically what I'd call a problem of prayer, meaning if God really can't change, then how can he actually interact or respond?
1: There are a lot of different ways they would deal with that. And depending on whether you accept middle knowledge or you're divine determinist and those kind of things, the responses are very different. But basically it gets back to the one moment in which God decided everything. And so the outflow of God's will included your prayer, and God decided to respond to your prayer at the same time that he decided to cause you to pray in the Absolutist determinist tradition. In the tradition of middle knowledge, God took into consideration the worlds that he could create. He knew that if he created you and you said a prayer, How you would respond, but he also included within his plan how he would respond to your prayer. So, at the moment of creation, this was all built in. God's will doesn't change in response to anything that happens in the world. His will was all set up at one moment in the creation outside of time.
0: All right, and then we could probably skip over this pretty quickly because you already talked about it kind of in the intro, but it's clear from the scriptures that, at least from the Old Testament, the God did respond to prayers or pleadings of prophets. For example, the same example you used, the Ninevites. God had planned to destroy them, and then they repented, and then there was a change in God's will, and he no longer willed to destroy them. And you talk about in the book kind of what you just said, that there are other views where they would say that God... Oh, well, I guess this is actually important to the next part of the conversation. So one view is that God had basically planned from the beginning that if the Ninevites did not repent, then they would be punished. If they did repent, then they wouldn't be punished. And so he's like, I'm ready for any of these contingents.
1: You're getting ahead of yourself and mixing up two different points of view. So on the absolutist point of view, God, in the simple, and I mean this in the technical sense, in the simple moment of creation, everything flows from that moment. Everything was decided, everything's entailed in it, and... The change, God knew that the Ninevites would repent, It in fact, he caused them to repent in either direct or indirect sense, and he knew that his will would be that given that they would repent, he would not destroy Nineveh. And so we would see that God had this intention from time immemorial, what the scripture actually says that God changed his mind. Even in Hebrew, that is the term that's used. You can't read this literally in any sense. And I don't mind saying that the absolutist interpretation seems to be totally contrary to the basic intent of the scriptural text. I don't believe that this is a book written by Hebrews, but in any event, the book about Jonah was not written by Hebrew, very likely. And so what we're talking about is not necessarily a Hebrew or the Hebrew view, but there are all kinds of places in the Old Testament where God changes, and he changes his mind in response to what humans do. I don't think that the absolutist view is adequate to the scriptures. I think that, therefore, the distinction between the God of the philosophers and the God of the religious believers is divided by a gulf that can't be passed. And that those in the tradition who thought that the scriptures could be felicitously interpreted in the way that they do have rested the scriptures in a way that is just not faithful to what the text is actually teaching us.
0: right, then, just to remind the kind of the view we've developed, you say here, I have argued that God cannot know future contingents with certainty. Rather, God knows from all eternity all possibilities. In addition, I have argued that although God is not limited by our particular inertial frame of reference, God still experiences a before and after of what is really actual from moment to moment. Then you ask, does God's contingent knowledge of future contingents within ontological time mean that he cannot be immutable in will? You say, I believe. The answer is yes in one sense, and no in another sense, and if you could kind of go into what you mean by that.
1: Sure. His will that his purposes will be achieved is not changed. So he has certain purposes in mind, and we call that his plan. And events can't so occur that his will about his plan is changed or that his plan won't be realized. However, events can so occur that the way that God intended to achieve his plan through plan A can be changed by our free response to what occurs, so he may resort to plan B or plan C or plan X to the ninth power. So God's will changes in the sense that his will, how he will accomplish his plan, changes. But the overall scope and purposes of his plan and his will to accomplish those purposes does not change
0: you put, I have also argued that God can know from all eternity that his overall purposes will be accomplished because he knows from all eternity all possible challenges to his purposes and how he will respond to overcome such challenges. So I ask in my notes here, I said, how can he make a plan from all eternity with so many different factors? In my further reading, I think you actually answer this pretty sufficiently. Because this isn't fully developed, but I, just, but I would have to imagine that he would have to base his plans on the current possibilities and how that shifts with time, and now all the possibilities are different. I just took issue with you, said he knew from all eternity those things.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's the bottom line God is omni resourceful, He's divinely resourceful, He's super resourceful. And so nothing's going to get in the way because if Plan A doesn't work, Plan 99 will. And while we can think only a few moves ahead, God's way ahead of that. Now, he's got a lot of variables to work with. What this suggests is that his knowledge is really much broader than in tradition, rather than dealing just with just one plan that he decided all by himself in one moment. He's actually interacting with the moving set, and his knowledge is much faster, and his resourcefulness to be able to respond has to be much greater than in the tradition. And so I'd like to add an omni, and that is that God is omni-resourceful. How's
0: that? If this is so, that God is resourceful, I guess, then God does not need to wait until free agents act to decide how he will respond. He has already always decided how he will respond. God could be eternally resolved that if a person does a certain act at a certain time, then God will do a different certain act. But if that person refrains from doing that act at that time, then God will do some other act. God's conditional will thus can be immutable without incoherence, even if time and worldly change and contingency are real.
1: Yeah, but what I want to emphasize, I think this is important. God isn't interacting with mere possibilities. He's not interacting with just his self and his own plan. God is a person, and the way that he interacts is to interact interpersonally. And so he waits on us to make our choices before making his choices to the means by which he will accomplish his plan. And the remarkable thing is that God waits on us. He may even give us certain powers. He may cede to us the ability to, for instance, consent before he makes certain changes in our lives. He may wait on us to give him permission before he interferes in our lives or acts or reacts in our lives. Or he may wait, and this is what I think is really happening almost all the time, he may wait to see if we're learning the lessons that will serve us the best, and that I believe many of which we agreed to learn before we came here or agreed to have at least a chance to learn before we came here, and that God is waiting on us to gain the kinds of experiential knowledge and to learn from our experience in such a way. We're then willing to take on greater challenges. So if we learn the lesson, challenge A comes our way, and it will be much you know, ready to move on. If we don't, then he sends back the lessons that we didn't learn the first time to give us another chance to learn it, that kind of a thing.
0: And then I wanted to move into here. I thought you made a pretty good point here, and then you developed this even further. So you put, it, though I have conceded that God could have resolved his conditional will from all eternity, meaning, you know, he could have decided basically he would do X in a certain situation or Y in a different situation, it may be that God has good reasons for not having done so, meaning resolved his conditional will from all eternity. So if God's conditional will is indexed to mere possibilities that may occur in the world, rather than to actualities as they occur, then God's actions do not relate to me as a person, but merely as an impersonal possibility. And so I really like this next part where you compare this to a computer. You say the a computer is indexed so that if X, then 1, or if Y, then 0. So basically it's saying that, I guess it's possible within... God's scope of ability and knowledge that he could just plan for any contingent that way and then react as a computer does, like, oh, this happened, therefore I do this. And then, uh-oh, this person did this, and then I do that. But you argue, and the next part of this is that that's not a personal way to interact. That's going against a Kantian principle of using a person as a means rather than an end in themselves. And let me just read this. as what God actually does through his implementing will, also always finally depends on what I do rather than what God wills, as you were talking about before. For example, whether I repent and feel forgiveness is totally up to me. I feel forgiveness because I put myself in the stream of forgiveness, so to speak, and not because God has decided to initiate forgiveness in response to my repentance. So God is not responding to me, but merely to the possibility of me, and the possibilities arising from that impersonal logical possibility, and that's what we're going against here. And that's why I say in Kantian terms, if God responds to indexical possibilities rather than to concrete actual individuals who enter into a real relationship with him, God, then that would mean God treats our humanity as a mere means rather than an end having intrinsic value when he resolves his conditional will in relation. And so, I don't know if you want to talk any more about that before we kind of dive into the I-thou concept that we talked about a little bit in the first couple episodes.
1: Yeah, I want to drive this point home. I pointed out two differences between Joseph Smith's view of God and the tradition. Creation ex nihilo, and the notion that God's divinity is one that a divine person could freely choose to give up for a while. The third, however, is much, much more important, and that is that God interacts with persons interpersonally. God's will isn't indexed from all creation. To mere possibilities, and it isn't solely His will that's being implemented, so that everything is an expression of God's will. And there are no persons. There's no personal value. There are no vows. All there is is this will to deal with us as mere possibilities or its, just things. And so, what Joseph Smith does in his theology is he personalizes God and interpersonalizes God's relationships. He makes it so that God is working with us as we are in the moment. And interacting with us in an actual relationship as it develops and as we develop it. And God has, because he loves us, and it's the way we deal, for instance, I I may deal with you as my son. It may be that you're asking me things that I think I know better than you from my experience. But I'm willing to allow you to convince me or to convince me to give you opportunities or possibilities or to deal with you in a way where I'm willing to change my mind and the way that I relate both to you and to what I choose to do because of the way that you have interacted with me. And so, in a sense, God is making himself, and this is important. This is really one of the key differences. God is vulnerable in relationship to humanity, in Joseph Smith's view. God feels sadness when we feel sadness. And it's an appropriate sadness within the completeness of the divine life, but it's still sadness. Real sadness, not just make-believe sadness, not just something that God's doing to appease us. God genuinely participates in our emotional lives. But not only that, God genuinely works with us to bring about reality. We're co-creators with God in what we're doing. This is a very important aspect of Joseph Smith's theology. I think it is the primary value. It's the pay dirt. It's when you get down to it, What if you're looking at the value of what Joseph Smith taught, this is where I believe it resides. This is the gold of the Gospel of the Restoration as I see it.
0: And just to dive a little deeper into that, I know one of the philosophers that you really like is named Martin Buber, and he brings to light kind of this concept, and it's related to Kant's philosophy, and just kind of takes it into a further developed direction. So he talks about an I-thou relationship versus an I-it. And so what you just described is God relates to us in a real relationship with an I-thou, meaning, as we talked about before, I don't know if everyone heard that, but thou is an endearing term, a personal term, as opposed to, obviously, it is impersonal, interacting with an object, and that you're using an object as a tool rather than a living being that you are having a relationship with. And so we're bringing this up because, as we just talked about, if God has just merely resolved to say, if a human sins, then I punish them, be, or if you repent, then you will feel the feelings of repentance. That's not a personal relationship. We're talking about here, like you just said, God actually listening specifically to that person. It's not just you entering into the stream of repentance. It's God actually forgiving you, literally, and giving you this great feeling of divine love.
1: And he's giving us the opportunity and the power to make a difference to him. He makes himself vulnerable so that God actually chooses to allow us to influence his life. In other words, God is open to being influenced and changed by us because he chooses to be. Let me put it this way, I think, it is a way of seeing it. Persons aren't fungible. Um, as a son, I don't want just anybody as a son. I want you as my son. Nobody else can take your place. And so I'm just not indexing this and saying, well, my son said this. No, it's not just my son. It's you. And it's Jacob. And nobody else can take your place. It's not like, well, you know, if you lose that one, we'll just get you another one. That's what it means to be fungible. One's as good as another. With persons, that's not the case. There's this interpersonal value over and above the mere itness of a thing. And it makes all the difference in the world. God loves us For us, who we are in our particularity and all of the individual reality of our individuality. I mean, this is a remarkable thing that God has chosen to be open to allow us to influence him and to become vulnerable to us. Moreover, when we have this kind of view, it teaches us a lot about our own interpersonal relationships. And we begin to see the vulnerability is actually a divine power. It is something remarkably wonderful and beautiful to be vulnerable and to choose to be vulnerable to other people, not because we're weak, but precisely because we have an interpersonal strength and love that empowers us. In defining this view, persons are never treated as mere indexical possibilities the way they are in the tradition. They're not treated as mere things and and mere it's. Persons are endowed with their full personality, the full beauty and value. There's this intrinsic value that is not interchangeable with anybody else that is unique in all the universe for each individual person. And so what Joseph Smith has done is opened up the way to have a theology where the full value of personality and individuality is finally given its recognition and allowed to flourish.
0: All right, great. Let me just close out the section with this quote then. It says, God seeks true living interaction with persons so that he can bring us into the divine relationship as peers and not as mere subordinates. And for me... I'll read the rest of the quote, but for me, that's, like you said, this is one of the main things about Mormonism that I think sets it apart, because I think in a lot of other religions, you would feel as a mere subordinate, but literally in Mormonism, we are to become peers with God. All right, thus, God waits for our petition to respond. He waits for our love to realize his joy and waits for our repentance to realize his will for us. God's will is thus passable. God's will cannot be controlled or caused by us, but it can be affected by our free decisions because God has freely chosen to enter into an I-thou relationship with us. It follows that God's will, both conditional and implemented, is changeable if God decides to change it. And Jacob, do you want to take the next section?
2: All right, so the next part is the mutability and mutability in God's knowledge. And you start with, in the sense of compossibility with events in the actual world, the realm of possibilities is forever changing as the world changes. God need not experience the actual world to intuit the realm of abstract possibilities or merely logical possibilities that could be actualized without regard to circumstances or what has been actual in the past.
1: So what we want to say is that God knows all logical possibilities. God could interact merely with logical possibilities and decide which of those logical possibilities He wants to make actual. This is actually the way that Alvin Plantinga speaks of God's relationship to the world. God simply actualizes those logical possibilities He chooses, and in the tradition, that turns out to be kind of the way it it always is. God is simply actualizing those logical possibilities that He likes, and so God is dealing with logical possibilities, not with people, not with those.
2: So, and then you also go on. Any being having perfect faculties of reason can list the complete realm of such abstract possibilities without reference to what is actual at that ontological time in the world. Such truths are known to be logically possible a priori. However, God's knowledge of what is compossible with what has occurred in the actual world or concrete possibilities cannot be determined without knowing what has occurred in the world up to the ontological time which defines the edge of ongoing realization in the actual world. And then you give an example that, you know, it's not and never can be in anyone's power to visit Disneyland until Disneyland was actually constructed.
1: Right, so what we're talking about here is in tradition, God doesn't have to wait on the actual world to unfold to actually interact with it. Everything is contained in the one timeless decision and everything that flows out of his creation moment. In Mormonism, however, the world is unfolding and reality is unfolding as each new moment is realized such that which free choices we will make and and what the the world will actualize in its I'm gonna use a white term here in its concrescence or in its synthesis of the possibilities open to it. So that there's also a kind of freedom in the natural world that isn't countenanced in the tradition in Mormon thought. It's built into the ontology of Mormonism. And so In Mormonism, we have this creative, ongoing, dynamic, unpredictable world that God is dealing with as it unfolds, and and he sees what reality will be. And then he utilizes his vast knowledge and power to interact with it in such a way that he can realize his purposes for the world. Now, that means that God has taken into himself in each new moment the value that we've created in the relationship with him. It means that maybe he had initially thought of plan A, but given the way events have unfolded and the way that we have actually grown and and petitioned him, that he's decided the plan B would be a better way to go at that moment. Or maybe in deference to us, he'll uh, give in to plan B, even though he realizes it may not be in our best interest it still will give us the opportunity to learn. Even though we may not take the opportunity, God is still waiting to see whether the world he's chosen to allow us to implement will be one that works out or whether he then has to have a plan C. And let me give you an example. In Mormon thought, we have this, and in Mormon history, we have this event where Joseph Smith prayed to allow Martin Harris to view the 116 pages. And the first two times that Joseph Smith asked God, the answer was no. You know, basically, don't be stupid. The third time it was God relented. It's like, well, you keep pestering me about this, so I'm going to give you the opportunity to learn based upon when I tell you, no, that things can happen. Now let's see what happens when you give Martin Harris the opportunity to take care of the 116 pages. As we all know, the God had to go with a really remarkable plan C. As a result, Joseph Smith had a, a great learning experience. Martin Harris had a great learning experience, and as a re- I think largely as a result of that, he was able to shuffle off his wife probably a good thing for him though i don't i didn't know the woman i hope she was a lot better than she appears to be in mormon sources the bottom line is god's resourcefulness is demonstrated because he had pre-planned foreseeing that this was a possibility he actually had a plan c in place already that he could resort to and instead of finishing the book of lehi that was on the plates that mormon had taken and edited and redacted He had the original plates that were available from the book of Nephi. And so we have the books of Nephi and Jacob as a result that otherwise we wouldn't have if, if plan A had occurred. So we see a distinct difference in the world based upon God's resourcefulness and a change of plans. We have three books of scripture, first and second Nephi, the book of Jacob. So we have these books that we otherwise wouldn't have. We'd only have the book of Lehi. So God's plan C makes a a difference in the world because the choices that were made and God's relenting to a prayer made by Joseph Smith changed the way that reality otherwise would have been. So we have this dramatic demonstration of this kind of interpersonal reaction, and God's giving us a chance, actually giving Joseph Smith a chance to learn from not listening to God the first two times. Now, here's a remarkable thing. I'm pretty sure that God made lemon out of lemonades on this occasion, because the, the books that we have are really, truly remarkable and wonderful. And so maybe it was better all along that we have those books, but clearly the first plan was that Joseph Smith would simply translate the book of Lehi. So I just want to show how this kind of thing works in actual history and the way that God interacts with people. And we get this kind of historical demonstration of the way that this view of Mormon theology works involving mutability. Now, God's knowledge about the possibilities that could be realized hasn't changed, but the plan that God is going to be using to implement his plan, in other words, the very means to which his ultimate goals will be achieved, changes. And his knowledge as to what was going to be reality changed as well. So all of this is demonstrated in this really remarkable story. And I hesitate to suggest it, but it also gives us the opportunity to have these really amazing stories and and these amazing examples so that we can realize the way that God works with us. Maybe it was worth it after all. Uh,
2: What you were saying there brings up a few questions for me. First of all, you said as a result of uh, Joseph's petitioning numerous times and then eventually losing the 116 pages, which was the book of Lehi, you said we got the books of Nephi and Jacob. Those books had previously already been written. Were you saying that it appeared the plan would be, you know, the Book of Lehi would have sufficed, and then we wouldn't have had the the rest of the plates of Nephi; those would have been sealed, or something. We would have just went on to Mosiah, or
0: I think he's saying they wouldn't be written, right? Well, no, they would have been
1: written anyway. Yeah,
2: because they, they were they would, already written.
1: Yeah, but if you go and read the Words of Mormon, you see that they were stuffed within the middle of the gold plate. They wouldn't have been translated if they weren't needed. I think is the clear sense of what uh, Joseph Smith is saying in response to the loss of the 116 pages, because...
0: That's good to clarify, because it, it sounded like you were saying, I don't, it just seemed to contradict that God doesn't have foreknowledge if you're saying that God anticipated that Joseph Smith could make this one act, and so he doubled up on the scriptures. So that's not what you're saying, you're saying...
1: No, this was plan C, so...
0: Yeah, he knew it was a possibility, but he right, didn't just, know. Isn't it, it wasn't was. it a possibility that at any any moment Joseph Smith could use his free will to give all the pages away or something? I'm just saying, that like, can... Do we want to really go there? Or does that basically destroy your whole argument for not having foreknowledge?
1: No, no. Obviously, it doesn't destroy the whole knowledge. It anticipates that there are a number of possibilities that can be realized, and God doesn't know which one it is. That's what's built into the nature of this historical event. And in fact, it's a real example of God going from plan A to plan C to improvise what he's up to with Joseph Smith. And it's expressed in the text that that's what's occurring. So, yes, God anticipated it as a possibility. No, he didn't anticipate it would be the reality. But when that reality did emerge, he had a plan in place to take care of it. I assume that if Joseph Smith decided to go to hell in a handbasket and just throw all the pages to the wind, he would have said, you know, Oliver Cowdery, that's why I had you in the wings. That's why I taught you to begin to translate. Now, step up.
2: And we'd probably get something from the sealed portion, is what you're saying.
1: No, I mean, I think the angel was perfectly capable of taking the gold plates away from Joseph Smith. He did it several times, and he could have taken and handed them to Oliver Cowdery. In fact, he did hand them to Oliver Cowdery on one occasion. (laughs) All I'm saying is God is very resourceful. We can think maybe four or five steps ahead when we're playing chess. I'm an attorney, so I'm always dealing with multiple scenarios of possibilities that I have to plan for, especially Mm -hmm. when I'm doing a trial. I have to anticipate all kinds of contingencies. But while I can go up to maybe 12, God goes up to billions and billions and billions. He's that resourceful and that knowledgeable.
2: Okay. You also said something else that God might allow us to go through something that is not in our best interest. And I wanted to clarify, are you saying that's only if we persist and ask for that in petitionary prayer? Or what did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I assume that Joseph Smith had already learned the lesson that when God says no, it's always best to listen to God. If he had, he wouldn't have lost 116 pages. But as a result, he wouldn't listen to God, so God relented. He had a very painful lesson to learn. I think this was one of the most difficult experiences in Joseph Smith's life in relationship with God. He was distraught. The sources say he was out in the front of his yard where he lived, sitting on the fence, just absolutely distraught and beside himself. He thought he he had lost his soul. Yeah. And so this was a very difficult thing for Joseph Smith to go through. He didn't have to go through that pain if he'd learned the lesson the first time, if he'd listened to God when God said no, but he didn't. And God finally said, you know what? You're very persistent. You're like Moses. You want to argue with me and get your way. So I'm going to allow you to have your way. Let's see if you can learn what happens when when we do that. And so later on in his life, Joseph Smith actually said, when God says something, I've learned that he means it and I can trust it. I don't have to second guess it. I'm obviously putting in my words and not his, but Mm -hmm. um, the bottom line is that God allows us to learn. And if we don't learn the easy way, we're going to learn through pain the hard way. Bottom line is that God's very resourceful. There are a number of possibilities depending on the choices that we make. And if he can see that it's not going to destroy his entire plan, he may allow us to go through something very painful in order to learn a lesson that's really important for us to learn. And when I say it's not in our best interest, ultimately learning the lesson is in our best interest. There's no guarantee we'll ever learn the lesson. We're still free to be obtuse and not get what our life experience has to teach us. And so with Joseph Smith, he had the opportunity to learn through this. But there was always the possibility he still wasn't going to get it. He was going to continue on his own way and his his own willfulness, doing things the way he wanted to do them rather than the way God wanted to do them. And it may be way later in his life when God asked him to do really tough things, I mean tougher things than you and I could ever do, and Joseph Smith just said, yep, if that's what God's asking, I've already learned this lesson, I'm willing to obey his will.
2: Then you also go on to, uh, and I don't know if we want to to dive too deep into this, because we, we've we already talked numerous times about uh, a timeless God and, and issues with that. But you bring up the issues of immutability and a timeless God, and you use an example of a play, or and God being the author of a play and knowing all the sequences. Do we want to go into that, or is that?
1: Well, with respect to divine timelessness, here's the problem of immutability for God's knowledge. It's entailed by timelessness, but it's also entailed by immutability. God can't know what time it is now. He can know what's written in the book. He can know what sequence events occur in, and he can know basically what the causal relationship events is. He just can't know which event is actually occurring. So take actors on a stage. He's written the play, he knows that in the play, and then we'll take Le Miserables, He knows that the you know, all of the students take on the French government before Mary is saved by Jean Valjean. He knows that those two events occur in that order. He just doesn't know which one's occurring when whether either of them is occurring, because he's outside of the stream of time and has no basis for knowing what time it is on earth, what's actually occurring. He simply knows the story and he doesn't know the actuality of the events as they transpire if he's a timeless deity. Otherwise he would change from knowing that this is now the case, that is, that the, the students are on the barricade, to knowing that that's no longer occurring. And what is occurring instead is that Jean Valjean is carrying Marius through the sewers of Paris. So if God is immutable in knowledge, then he can't have that change of understanding of what is actual And so there's a very good argument to be made that if God is immutable in the strong sense of absolute immutability that he can't change in any of his intrinsic properties, then God can't know what time it is. And he can't know what stage the events of the actual world are as they are occurring now.
2: Right. And to drive the point home, you give an example that, you know, if God knows here in 2017 that I'm in need of divine help, that's all nice and good. But he can't actually know That right now is 2017 because of this divine immutability. He can't know the difference of the times. And so he wouldn't know that, yeah, you need the help now. He'd know that, yeah, in 2017 you need the help, but he'd never know when 2017 is.
1: Right. And so what's happening in the absolutist tradition is everything was indexed into God's creative decision. And so he knows that there will come a time when you have need, and he knows that he prefigured in the creation the kind of response that you will get to your need. He simply can't be responding to you in your moment of need. Because he's not really dealing with you. He was just dealing with the possibility that he chose to be actual for you. And I think that's not an interpersonal or even a personal type of relationship. I think it's an impersonal relationship. These are very important issues about the way God actually interacts with us and the nature of the relationship that we have with God. And the way that we view these things in our theology makes a very clear difference as to how we view God as dealing with us interpersonally. And taking us into his life in his vulnerability or whether everything's just flowing from god's will and his creative action and his creative will and we you know really what we're doing as a result of his creative will and the response that he gives us in response to what he decided to have us do is also a part of his creative will there's just one will in the entire creation and it was expressed all at one timeless moment
2: all right So well, that Sums up the immutability, immutability and mutability in God's knowledge section. So we'll go ahead and move on to divine passibility in feeling.
0: All right, last section is divine passibility in feeling. And this talks about a lot of what we talked about a bit at the beginning. So, can God suffer? And obviously, absolutists or a lot of classical Christians would say, no, God can't suffer. He's perfectly happy. But then you have to deal with this interesting character called Jesus. And it's pretty clear from what I read, at least. I'm sure you can have a nuanced reading, but Jesus did indeed suffer. And that's the whole crux of Christianity, that he suffered on behalf of us. And so divine passibility and feeling kind of deals with that. So we're kind of hinting at a Christology here that we're going to get into in the next chapters, but we're going to talk about it from the view of talking about passibility.
1: What I'm doing here is laying the foundation for the view that God is passable, and the senses in which God is passable. And that means, in what sense does God have an emotional life? In what sense is God affected by us? And in what sense is God's perfect bliss and happiness affected by what occurs in the world? These are important questions. And because I'm a passibilist, these are the kinds of things that I can address. If I were an impassibilist, I would have said everything I already had to say. Let's first deal with a few different terms, okay? So, there were the docetists. Docetism is the view that God cannot suffer at all. And so, if Jesus was very God, he only appeared to suffer. He didn't really suffer. And so, the, those who believed that Jesus was on the cross, appearing to suffer but not really suffering, were called docetists. Patropassionism refers to the position that the Father is identical to God the Son, and thus, In the suffering of Jesus, the Father also suffered. So this is the view that Jesus truly suffered, but because he's identical in a sense with the Father, where the Father is so identified with him in his experience, that the Father also suffered in Jesus' suffering. That's called Patripassionism. Theopascotism is the view that Jesus is identical. He's the very same. There's no distinction between him and the incarnate Logos, who is a divine person and fully divine. And thus, the sufferings of Jesus as the divine Logos, the the Logos suffered, but not God the Father. So the Logos suffers, Jesus suffers, but the Father doesn't suffer. We had what was known as the Theopascotist controversy. We had the Patropassionist controversy, and we had the Docetic or the Docetist controversy. And these were central problems that were addressed in early Christianity. Each of these views had those who proposed them and defended them.
0: All right, then we'll dive into... Three arguments for passability and feeling. First is the argument of divine love. If you just want to go ahead and take these. Uh, so what is the argument of divine love and what does it assert?
1: The argument from divine love is that love, the type of true love and genuine love entailed in interpersonal relationships, entails passability and feeling or an, an emotional response that is genuine to the lives of human beings such as us. And so, in allowing and being vulnerable to us, in choosing to be open to being influenced by us, God has chosen to be open to having how he feels and his emotions affected by us. And so, the notion is, is that the very notion of love entails this kind of emotional response to the beloved. If our beloved were in extreme pain or in extreme depression, if we didn't feel any kind of emotional response to that, we would not have an appropriate response. It, it wouldn't be a loving response. It wouldn't be the kind of response that a person who has chosen to allow another person into his or her life, and we certainly wouldn't call it love. So the argument from divine love is that this type of vulnerable love entails passibility and feeling.
0: All right, that makes sense to me. So the nature of being in an actual real relationship opens God up to suffering because he cares about another person.
1: Yeah, and and keep in mind that the entire tradition maintained that God was apathetic. That means he has apatheia. He is not open to the passion of emotion in this sense. God is not in any way influenced by us and what happens to us on the Thomistic tradition. And for just about every single Christian thinker, God is not open to be influenced in his blissfulness by what occurs to us. But that is not the appropriate response of a loving person to the distress of another. And Krill gives this, it's the kind of example I gave earlier. He's saying, you know, that a parent could see his or her child in great pain but because that parent's life is so complete and full, they really don't feel the pain. But I don't think that that's an appropriate characterization of the way that a loving parent responds to their child's suffering. I think the reality is is that... Of course, a loving parent who lives a full life is going to feel great distress at their child's pain and to suggest that God is just unaffected by our pain, that he doesn't feel any kind of emotional response in response to what we experience makes God more of an impersonal monster, if you will, than a loving God. It just seems to me, for instance, a person who expresses no delight or augmented happiness when his child is born and feels no grief at the death of his child or the seduction of his wife is properly considered to be insensitive and not to be responding appropriately because that kind of response fails to properly value the relationship and the feelings in life of the other who is a thou. And so the argument from Divine Love, I think, is a very strong reason for maintaining that God is passable with respect to his emotions or feelings.
0: And then before we move on, just one last thing about Krill's example. I think you'd agree with him here, but it's just kind of a semantic thing. So basically what he's saying in his example, he uses the example of a child that is sick or something, and he has to undergo some sort of painful cure or procedure. And while the parent looks and sees the procedure happening in that it pains the child, let's say they had to go into an operation, they're like, oh, I know that you're a kid and you can't understand that this is for your own good, but I'm not going to be sad because I know that it is for your own good. And he's, he kind of compares God's feelings in that way. Would you agree at least to there? Just you're kind of clarifying that you can't take that to its logical conclusion
1: well but even the rejoicing of God is a response to the events in the world and so is being influenced emotionally by what happens in the world so it's an ill formed type of an example used by krill for his position more importantly I think that the reality is is that the parent would appropriately have mixed feelings I feel great sorrow that for instance that my child who has undergone surgery had to go through the pain of recovering and having incisions and the pain of recovery but i'm I'm overjoyed that the surgery may have been successful. it It seems to me that this recognition that there is both joy and sadness in the divine life is important.
0: All right. Next one is the argument from imminent omniscience, and so it tells what imminent omniscience is, and then what the argument is there.
1: in imminent omniscience, God participates in our very experience directly, so. If I am seeing a person walk into the 7-Eleven and hold a gun and rob it, I feel fear. And God knows that I feel fear. He experiences my fear as I experience it myself because he participates immediately in my experience. But there's one difference. While I feel fear, and I feel fear for my life, God's life isn't in danger, and he doesn't feel fear his life. He knows that I feel fear. But it would be improper and appropriate for God to feel the same kind of feel because he's not in jeopardy. And so God's perspective on my experience would be different than mine, but it still would be participating in my experience.
0: Those first two, for me, there's kind of a, a refreshingly relatable view on God. They're not that complex. This is to a point how a human relates to another human. For example, the first, like you said, a parent to a child, they feel the sorrow even though that child is... You know, it's not them literally suffering, it's the child suffering, but since they're in a relationship, that does matter to them, even if it's good for the child, as we describe in this, same thing. So, even though God's not actually feeling the fear of someone having a gun pointed at them, he relates to another human being and actually understand and experience it, it just is a really relatable concept That's it makes God more human, if you will, not like to bring God down, but I just mean like a relatable person, if you will.
1: In this sense, for God to be more human is to be also more divine, because the completion of our own humanity is divinity. And so when we say this makes God more human, what we're saying is, it seems that God has a more complete recognition of the value, of the intrinsic value of human life, and our individuality, and of our own experiences. He participates with us in such a way that the kind of commitment we have to our own lives, he shares. He has that kind of commitment to our lives as well. And this is the important thing. Let's use another example. God knows that I'm in great distress and pain because I've lost a member of my family, and I'm in great pain. And humans go through these kind of experiences. If we live at all very long, we all experience the pain of losing loved ones to death. And God shares in our pain. And in its appropriate recognition of the kind of pain that we suffer when we feel the absence and the loneliness and even sometimes despair. God sorrows in our sorrows. When we commit sins, God sorrows in the pain that we suffer when we sin. And he feels pain at our sinning. Sinning means essentially the rupture of the relationship between us and God. He's pain when he gives us gifts and we don't accept them. Because he sees what could have been, and he sees that we've rejected the gifts that he gave us. And so God has an appropriate response based upon his imminent omniscience of our own experience. God participates in our experience immediately. However, it's important to recognize that God is not at the mercy of our experience by participating in it immediately. If I'm in despair, that doesn't mean that God is in despair, shares my despair, because he has such a fullness of divine life that he doesn't despair. So while he feels an appropriate sadness that I am in despair, that doesn't mean that God is also in despair. It means that his response is one that is appropriate given the completeness, the fullness, and the perfection of the divine life. Also, I would say there was scriptural basis for this kind of a thing. I'll let you get to that in the book of Moses.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to read here. So in the book of Moses, there's a, a moment that is, well, I'll just read it, so. says, Enoch was taken into God's bosom, and he beheld a vision of God's glory. And he said, the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. And Enoch bore record of it, saying, how is it that the heavens weep and shed forth their tears upon the mountains? And Enoch said unto the Lord, how is it that thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity?
1: What I love is at this point, God shows him why he's crying. What he does is he shows him the history of the world up to that point. The entire world just absolutely burdened with sin and the kinds of atrocious acts of human inhumanity to humans. And just the sheer evil. And when Enoch beholds the evil of humanity and what we do to each other, he's inconsolable. He himself is weeping and he can't be consoled. He is just in such pain for what God is experiencing. In relationship to humanity. This of course suggests that based upon God's knowledge of interaction with the world, he is emotionally influenced by it, so much so that it causes God to himself to weep. But more importantly, if we could have God's perspective, as Enoch did, we would see why he was weeping and it would move us to tears. And we don't have the fullness and completeness of the divine life and the fullness of the knowledge of God's purposes and how he's going to realize and to console us. And all the history of the world, as far as I know, Enoch was the only one who has shared this kind of experience with God, at least scripturally, that's the only one I know of. But it is such an insight into the pathos of the divine life, pathos meaning the emotional life of God. And so the divine pathos, the pain that God feels in his relationship with humanity. There's also another example, and this is in Alma 7, but we'll get into this more when we get into Christology, and that is that. Jesus has to participate in our own pain and directly as a mortal. So when God knows that we are in pain, he's not feeling bodily pain. He's not feeling our bodily pain. It's a different kind of knowledge. When we are in a situation where we fear for our lives, God knows that we fear for our lives, but that doesn't mean that God fears for his life. But when Jesus became mortal, he had that kind of immediate experience. So there's a distinct nature of experience involved in imminent omniscience, where God participates as a third party observer in our experience, as his own experience, and where he participates immediately as one undergoing the experience. And so these are important distinctions to keep in mind, and we'll get into that further when we talk about Christology later.
0: All right, great. All right, and then the third argument for passibility is the argument from worshipworthiness. What do you have to say about that?
1: Well, in order to be worthy of our worship, God would have to be the type of being who has an appropriate emotional response to the experiences that we have in our lives. He's the kind of being who suffers with us. He's the kind of being who suffers in our sufferings and rejoices in our triumphs, who shares our lives to a full extent. That is part of the worship worthiness because it moves us to worship God, to know that he condescends to participate in our own lives, not merely condescending to become human but condescends in each moment to let us matter to him and to let us not only influence him, but to actually be co-creators of the world. He allows us to take actions which have bad effects in the world, incredibly bad effects. This is when we get into the problem of evil. But God defers to us to allow us to make even horrendous mistakes, but not just mistakes, to actually intentionally do the kinds of acts that are just unthinkable. And God is willing to take into his life all of the sadness, the dysfunction, and the sheer evil of our lives. He's willing, because he knows what we're doing, and he's choosing not to interfere. And it pains him that we would make the kinds of choices that we do. It pains him when we act in such a way that we treat others inhumanly. And it matters to him. That it matters to him moves us to care in a way for God that I think is otherwise impossible. So from a human perspective, it seems to me that the worshipworthiness of God is enhanced by an appropriate recognition of the divine pathos and the way that God participates in our lives and has chosen to be vulnerable to us.
0: A great example of this in the Book of Mormon, and I won't read the whole thing, I'll just kind of sum it up, and I just like the quote you give about it, but in 3rd Nephi, chapter 17, verses 6 through 22, and I advise you read that, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but. Basically, in third Nephi this is a resurrected Christ visits the Nephites. So this is after the crucifixion. He's resurrected, he's ascended to heaven, come back, and he's visiting his sheep of another fold, as they say. Um, but in these passages Christ comes among the people and he has the people come to him, and they had just undergone like some earthquakes and there was like a great movement of the earth, and so these people had just suffered, and so he, he calls them and he blesses the children and he brings his people together and then he expresses his sorrow for the wickedness of humankind and he's sad because of that and he even weeps but then he also is so joyful and glad because of the faithfulness of these people that are with him and and for their faith and their love of god and so it's just this unique picture in scripture of a fully realized jesus or you know this god having gone through the experience of the atonement and having suffered Let me just read this quote, and then you can comment, if you will. So it says, This is a picture of a God who has become mortal and triumphed over the limited mortal perspective. The exalted Christ just is the complete revelation of the divine nature in Mormon thought. It is a picture of a God who suffers more, not less, because of his divinity. It is a God who experiences greater joy, not less, by virtue of his compassion. God includes within himself both a fullness of joy and universal suffering.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think this is a majestic passage of Scripture, and it gives us such insight into the pathos of the divine life. It shows us that the completion of our humanity precisely is divinity, and that perfection of our humanity is the realization of our divinity. And so we see Christ himself the one to follow in this regard, and he's a fully emotional being. He's a being who participates fully in a divine pathos. And by saying he's fully emotional, I don't mean that he's, he's distraught or that he's a drama queen or anything of that nature. What I'm saying is that the divine pathos is the appropriate emotional response within the context of the fullness of the divine life. A fullness that includes a fullness of divine love and the way that love actually values and participates in the lives of others. And so this passage of scripture, I think, is one that is very inspiring. Of all the scriptures in all the world, this particular scripture gives more insight into the divine nature as a fullness of humanity than any other, I think. And I think it also is a full revelation of the divine pathos of the nature of God's emotional participation in our lives and in the experience of the world. It's a majestic scripture.
0: All right, so we've kind of already resolved this, but Richard Creel, who we've been talking about a bit in this chapter, he has a big problem he sees if you allow God to suffer. He says, If God suffers with us, for us, and because of us, then religion, properly understood, becomes pity for God. After all, if God shares emotionally all the suffering of the world and also suffers his own misery over our waywardness, then he, of all beings, is the most to be pitied. And so you bring up that his view seems extremely problematic, and could you go into why that is?
1: Yeah, and that is because Creel himself is caricaturing a view which I think he's already properly laid out in a way that he should reject, and that is that the fact that God participates in the emotional life of the world, that there is a divine pathos, doesn't mean that God is at our mercy emotionally. Precisely because God experiences things from the perspective of the fullness of the divine life. From Krill's point of view, God's happiness is not affected by what occurs in the world. He's always perfectly blissful. And it's all the same to him. He gives this statement. I think this is a wonderful statement. He says, God is perfectly happy whether we are all saved or all damned. But what does that really mean? Krill says what God wants is merely that we choose for him or against him. He he doesn't care which one we do. God's will for us is our will for us, in a sense. But that's just nonsense. What would we think of a father who merely wants his son to either choose to commit suicide or not? doesn't matter which one it is, as long as he can honor whatever decision he makes. That is just nonsense. A loving father is one who cares about the well-being of his children and is saddened at the really ridiculous, stupid choices we make or the evil that we do to one another. We don't think of people as happier or better persons if they fail to properly grasp emotionally the appropriate response to the kinds of decisions that the people they love make it seems to me that if god doesn't really care whether we're eternally miserable or eternally happy because he's literally happy as possibly can be regardless then it seems to me that god is not responding his response is a non-response and it's the failure to properly value and grasp what's occurring in the world He just literally could not care less. But this being is not loving or even capable of personal response in any significant sense. Our lives, our triumphs and pains and our sufferings and joys, if they don't add anything to God's happiness, then it seems that they are meaningless. But the fact is that they aren't meaningless. Our triumphs are to be rejoiced in. Our joys are to be participated in. And our sorrows and pains are to be properly valued for the pain that they cause to us. And and to emotionally respond to that is the appropriate way of recognizing the value of persons, it seems to me. So Krill's view is not one that I can participate in. It seems to me that it renders God much less personal, much more of a non-personal being rather than the fully personal divine being that is revealed in Jesus of Nazareth and in the scriptures. It just seems to me that the Christian view, which finds its ultimate meaning in the suffering of a person on a Roman cross, that finds its ultimate value in the suffering of a person who is suffering and co-suffering with all other persons who exist, that that religion can't be the same religion that suggests that God is perfectly blissful no matter what. Having said that, I'm not sure that Krill would say that he's a full Christian in that sense, so it may not be a problem for him. But it seems to me that the Christianity properly values the pains and suffering and the joys and tramps of our lives, and that that is the appropriate way to respond, not literally not caring less what we choose. That seems to me to be an impersonal and inappropriate way to respond, and it's not just you know, maybe these are intuitive types of assertions, and I suggest that they are, but it seems to me that the kind of intuitive value that I'm asserting is a value judgment that is appropriate and a basis for a more meaningful relationship with God and a more appropriate emotional and participation in the divine life and in the divine pathos. So it seems to me that this has great value for those who desire to enter into a relationship with God.
0: All right. And then just kind of in summation, this is also as a teaser for what we're going to talk about in the next couple chapters, which is Christ specifically. But uh, and we didn't really cover this earlier, so if we could kind of touch on it and then just kind of bring it home here. So Krill also questions the value of having god suffer like what what would that add to god it doesn't it's not it doesn't have any instrumental value and in your book you say you concede that perhaps suffering doesn't have instrumental value for god as one godhead as a whole but it's different in respect to each divine person and why is that how does that relate to christ
1: we'll get into this more fully when we talk about christology and in fact we'll revisit it in volumes two several times and in volume three several times But the fact is, is there is a type of knowledge, a kind of knowledge that only comes from direct experience itself, personal knowledge, this kind of experiential knowledge that we gain, that really can't be gained in any other way than participating fully in the human suffering and pain that we experience as mortals. And it also seems I mean, there's this passage in Alma 7, that he learned compassion by the things that he suffered. In other words, God learned something of surpassing value and importance by himself experiencing rejection and pain and physical suffering in a way that he couldn't have appreciated merely by being in the complete fullness of the divinity and never having become mortal. And so we'll get into that more when we talk about Christology. In fact, it's the nub of Christology, and we can more fully develop that now that we've laid the foundation and groundwork for having that discussion.
0: All right, great. And so, yeah, I think we've gone over this subject pretty thoroughly. And so, unless you have anything else to say, I think we can close that out.
1: Just a simple question. Can you now see why there's a lot of groundwork that has to be laid before we can responsibly talk about Christology? We actually have to have these kinds of distinctions and notions clarified in view and why one view is preferable to another before we can assess Christology. I think you can begin to see why I would say that we couldn't responsibly discuss Christology without this foundation in place. At least I trust that's what you can see.
0: No, definitely. Otherwise, us and other people listening could just be talking past each other if you don't have these foundations of what we're actually referring to when we refer to God or Jesus or what it means to suffer or what he can know. Yeah, I see that they're all basically essential to be able to move into this next part of the discussion. We have to define God before we can talk about this next aspect of God.
1: Yeah, and now that we have all these different definitions and meanings of what it means to be immutable, what it means to be impassable, now we can have the conversation where we can assess the arguments of Christology. We couldn't even assess them. We couldn't assess the nature of the relationship of Christ and divine timelessness. We couldn't assess what it means for Christ and arguments from divine omniscience until we had a foundation regarding what omniscience means and why we adopted that view. And so now we're prepared to have this discussion about Christology, whereas having it without this foundation in place, I think is just, in a sense at least, irresponsible. We can't really have the discussion because the conceptual background necessary to even engage in the discussion wasn't in place.
0: All right. Nope. Makes sense. All right. So, yep. To that task, we will turn next. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash thought.